encourage you to join, take those out, and they will aid us in our time this morning as we look at uh, finishing those up. You'll, if you weren't here with us last week, you'll see that some of the blanks in your bulletin are already completed for you, and uh, that's because we had started this message last week and, and did not have a chance to be able to finish it, but I want to be able to do that today and for us to be able to look at the promise that is from God, God's promises, and what is... Briefly, that promise is that justification will be by faith through grace and that all the nations will be blessed through Abraham's seed. Uh, a little background, a little um, precursor for you to be able to just understand the context of the book. Uh, Paul's writing to the churches in the Galatia area, or the Galatians, if you, if you will, and that's from the variety of churches that he'd seen in his missionary journeys. That would be Antioch, Pisidia, Lystra, Derby, Iconium would be the churches that you'd see in the book of Acts, chapter 13, 14, as he's making his way through this area, and he's now communicating back to those local assemblies that have gathered to study God's Word. What you'll see is a reoccurring theme in the life of the Apostle Paul is that the Judaizers, those who would follow the law of the Old Testament, are constantly falling right behind Paul. Wherever he would go, they would begin to to, uh, try to challenge him. And this is exactly where he found himself in trouble there in, um, I believe it was, uh, Lystra or Derby, where they stone, uh, attempted to stone him to death, and they left him for dead, assuming he was dead, and then God miraculously raises him up, and he makes his way on his journey nonetheless. But ultimately, these are these same individuals, and they will come into these local assemblies, and they'll begin to try to teach that circumcision is required for salvation, that a portion of following the law had to be accomplished if you were going to be saved. And yet, this is what Throughout the history of the church has been refuted time and time and time again. Acts chapter 15, where they had the Council of Jerusalem to, to solve this very issue, to be able to have an assembly together to talk through this point, where they said, no, it was by faith through grace is why a person is saved, and it's how a person is saved. And so as a result of this, Paul is constantly addressing these type of Judaizers and communicating to them. And so in this, the theme of the, the whole entire book is found in chapter 2, verse 16. Where it says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that we, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So three times in one verse, Paul says, it's by grace through faith, not the law. Grace through faith, not the law. Grace through faith, not the law. Which then the question could be posed then is, well, then why do we have the law? What was its purpose? Why do we, why do we need to interact with it? Why, why did God give it if, that, if we needed it whatsoever? And this is going to be the question we're going to ask and try to answer today as Paul was walking through this same, very same argument with the Judaizers and with the people in Galatia there trying to communicate that. And so the first question you'll see is we answered last week. I'll just go through these very briefly. Found in verses 15 through 18. Does the law annul the previous promise? Does the law annul the previous promise? So uh, because the, the promise was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and you shall all the nations be blessed, and as verse 8 told us in chapter 3, Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. And so this, the promise preceded the, the law. And so if that's the case, then did the law who came afterwards annul it? And the answer is no. And how do we know that? Paul gives four examples there. One, an illustration of a covenant. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls or adds to it once it's been ratified. So you may come to terms on an agreement. You, one person can't just simply annul it uh, or add to it once it's been confirmed or ratified. Second, 
Uh, not only a human illustration, but the incarnation of Christ himself. Now, the promises, verse 16, were made through Abraham uh, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and your offspring who is Christ, which is saying, um, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, then you shall all the nations be blessed, was a direct fulfillment of the promised son, Isaac, and then from Isaac on throughout, eventually the, the Messiah would come through that very lineage. And so where Isaac, as an example, was a, a miraculous birth, right? In a sense that he was 100 and his wife was 90 when they gave birth. She was well past menopause and he was past the age of being able to bear children. And God supernaturally made a work in, in them to be able to have Isaac. Where Isaac was an offspring of a miraculous uh, origin, you see the same thing with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Except for Jesus was God and did not have a sin nature, as Isaac did. And so as you begin to see the incarnation of Christ, Christ coming to earth while we celebrate Christmas, was, is, was another point to show that the law did not annul the previous promise, which was in Christ. Third, succession from the promise. Well, it did not annul it, and it did not uh, uh, change it in any, in any manner because of succession from the promise. The promise was given beforehand. And so the question can be, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that he was declared, Abraham was declared righteous by God because of his faith, because he simply believed. And as a result of that, he was declared righteous. Well, that promise of being declared righteous upon faith happened 13 years, maybe even 14 years prior to the covenant of circumcision. And then you even take now after that, some 430 years after the last time the promise had been granted to, uh, to Jacob, uh, the promise had been communicated again to Jacob, you see 430 years to the law. When it was originally given to Abraham, it was 645 years since the law came. And so it, because this happened afterward, as we already said before, with the human covenant, it did not change nor uh, annul the previous comments that was made. And that was because this was a succeeding uh, covenant or a succeeding promise that was given through the law and, uh, and did not annul the previous promise that was given. And then lastly, the explanation of the promise. For if inheritance comes by the law, verse 18, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The law didn't exist then, as we already saw in the previous point. And so if the law did not exist then and the promise was already made, then by no means then the law would provide the inheritance or provide the promise. And two keys there that we begin to see why the promise was given. It was given simply by gift, you see, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. It was simply a gift. And as you see, not only that with that terminology, we also see the word inheritance. And how do you receive an inheritance? You don't earn it. You don't work for it. Someone must die in order for an inheritance to be granted. And so that, too, is a gift. And so to answer the question, does the law annul the previous promise? No. Why? Illustration of a covenant, a covenant, incarnation of Christ through that covenant, succession from the promise, and then lastly, the explanation of the promises. Four examples of why, then, the law of God did not annul the previous promise. But this can beg the question that even we can struggle with today, right? Why the law? I mean, it seems like it's such a stumbling block, and it just messes us up in so many ways that we just begin to look at the law, and it, and it frustrates us. But that's a beautiful thing here that Paul's going to begin sharing and shares throughout his letters about why then the law. That's what you see in verse 19. That's the question rhetorically that Paul poses. He's writing this letter to them. He's not there with them in person, and so he wants to try to remove some of the arguments that could be made or might be made. And so he's writing from a defensive posture there and says, why then the law? I mean, why do we even have the law then if the promise was already made and was given? And we're going to see four things that Paul communicates there in verse 19 and 20. First, you're going to see the definition of sin. The law of God helps us define what sin is. And that's good for us, is it not? And that's a helpful thing. 
we can look at the law in a couple different ways, right? You can look at the law as a cosmic killjoy and that God's up there in heaven and he just doesn't want us to have any fun and wants to have any have a good time and he's just he just wants to berate us and destroy us and he's just heavy handed and he's lording over us. You can look at it that way. Or you can look at the way that the Bible would describe to us, the way the Bible intended for us to receive and look at the law. The intent was the Bible says you shall not murder. Okay. Well, do you want someone murdering you or murdering one of your family members? Should not steal. You want somebody to, while I'm gone, the guy who's checking out our property and looking at our house right now to be just thieving us blind. Would we want that to be the case? No. And so the reality in those, those are blessings and protections for us to be able to define what sin is so that we would not do it to be able to aid us and protect us. And God's sovereign rule over us, it was there to protect us. And it was a loving measure that God given us. And so it defined sin for us. It was a definition of sin. That's why it says in verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. It's added because of transgressions. The people would continue to, to sin against God and the means for them to be able to know that God then places the law to define what sin is. This is exactly what Paul's argument is in Romans chapter 7. In Romans 7, verse 7, you don't have to hang in there, but... We will be coming back to this passage again. But Romans 7, 7 says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, we, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. God hadn't given us a standard. I wouldn't know that I was transgressing. I was moving beyond the boundary. I was moving beyond what God had prescribed as what was right. He continues in that same verse. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. This is the intent. Paul wants us to be able to see and be able to know the laws of God are good. They're not bad. They weren't wicked. They weren't something that was to harm us. It was actually to protect us. And part of that protection for us is to define, to define for us what is Sinful. So it was a definition of sin. That's one of the reasons for the law. But number two, a demonstration of sin. To demonstrate to us. What was it to demonstrate to us? That we're sinful. And that we're in need of a Savior. And this Savior, this faith, this promise that had already been given 645 years prior to this. Through Abraham. This promise that God made directly to Abraham. Upon whom God said, you are my friend. I'm a friend with you. And I'm giving you this uh, promise that you can be made as a result of you to be able to know who I am. And this promise is that the entire world, all the nations would be able to be blessed as a result of the seed that's coming from you. And this seed is going to be able to uh, make payment for sin. Right? This is the picture. This is the imagery that's taking place here. And so a demonstration of sin. And so not only was it to define what sin is, but then to demonstrate to us how sinful we truly are. Once again, going back to Romans 7, picking up in verse 9. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So when we can look at the law, the law is not bad. It was just we in our sin nature tried to pervert the law. We tried to then say that the law was the means by which for us to be able to grant life. And that's what the, the, the passage said here. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Right now, how could it promise life? Well, it just demonstrates to us that ultimately, if that we have life, if we could keep it. 
But we don't have life because why? We can't keep it. And so it can't give life because why? It doesn't promise that. It just demonstrates that we're alive in Christ as a result of that, that we have, that we're able to keep God's will and God's standard. And so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And in verse 13, this is the, this is the illustration here of how it demonstrates in us that we're sinful. Did that which is good then bring death to me? So if the law is good, did it bring death to me? Could a standard bring death? No. It's transgressing the standard that brings death, is it not? We've talked about several times here in in our sermons um, before, is ultimately that even in the Garden of Eden, right, there was a commandment. And you can enjoy all of these blessings, but this one tree do not take. And if you do, if you transgress that law, that commandment, then it will bring forth death. So did the, what, that which is good, that law of protection there that God had placed over Adam and Eve, was that, did that bring forth death? No. The transgression of that commandment brought forth death. And so it was a garden of yeses with one no. And that's how we need to look at God's law. Promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We should look at it as a blessing. With very few no's. But the no's that He grants us, we should... Be careful to pay attention to and careful to obey. And so that which is good, the law, then bring death to me by no means. It was sin producing death in me through that what is with that through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. So that's the definition. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. There it is. The demonstration of sin. Only did God define it. I'll be able to see what sin is. The sin might be shown to be sin. It might be defined. I could see it with my eyes. That's sinful. But then ultimately, through the commandment, might be, we might become sinful beyond measure. That the demonstration of sin could be demonstrated to us. We would know exactly what it is that God wants of us and the, and the reality of what happens to us, the consequences of sin when we transgress that, when we move beyond what is right. Which then leads to our third point. Why then the law gave a definition of sin, a demonstration of sin, and an admonition against sin. To be warned that what? Death comes through transgression of the law. That is death that we're going to be seeing. And so as we see the sin defined and we demonstrate that we are sinful beyond measure, then we be, it should provide us in a state where we're hopeless and helpless apart from, a, from one who is going to be able to make payment for sin. Which then it makes complete sense, does it not? That ultimately this is setting this thing up so eventually that we would be longing for a Messiah. Several years ago... I think it was 2012 we did a reading plan together and we chronologically read through the entire bible as a faith family and many of you guys were here and remember that we we dove in i remember uh the the summer months so it's probably around june to august maybe even early september uh that we were in the major and minor prophets and it was just like man judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment and it was like there was this longing that our church began to almost take on the 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 attitude and begin to really empathize and sympathize, sympathize for the children of Israel and it's like man we cannot wait for the latter part of September and October we can get into the new testament finally the messiah has come right i just remember it was just like even me every week i was like i don't even want to preach i just want to kind of just lie on the on the pulpit and just say yet again here we go more judgment more wrath and yes there was these promises that jesus was coming but ultimately as we were waiting for his appearance it was just like where is this weighing us down right and this is the picture here this admonition against sin is that man you should be warned that sin causes destruction it destroys us destroys our relationships and once again you go all the way back to genesis chapter three 
Everything changed, did it not? Relationship between God and man changed. Relationships between man and woman changed. Relationships between man and creation changed. Man and the animals that were were there and man and the ground. Everything was radically altered and marred as a result of sin. And it was a warning to us that this is going to be difficult and this is going to be hard. But even then, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there was a promise. That they should bruise his head and they should bruise his heel, right? A promise that was going to be made. And this is the promises. So even after that, all these successions of other things that were added and added and added and added did not nullify the previous promises that were had. But it was a warning to us about what was taking place. And that's what you see in verse 10. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, it had a meaning for, a- it had a meaning for Abraham at that particular time. And the meaning was there was a promised child, Isaac. And through Isaac then, there was going to be a multitude of other children. And through the multitude of other children, you were going to begin to see that God's promises had been fulfilled. Promises were a land and a lineage, right? You're going to be in the promised land that I'm giving you. And in that promised land, there's going to be a lineage of your people and that you will be blessed. But it was far bigger than that. And it wasn't just this lineage, but it was going to be all nations, as Genesis 12, 3 told us. And so ultimately, there was an admonition. It was a warning against sin. And in that warning against sin, it began to make us long for the future promise to be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And then lastly, the law. Then. What's up with this law? And then he begins to walk through almost as you read in in the latter part of 19 and 20. It's like he changes gears. It's like, what in the world are you talking about? Look what it says here in the latter part. Until the offspring uh, should come into the promise uh, to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, even as I read through this, and I just tried it before I start reading commentaries and a variety of other things. I just try to, try to read over the text and read over the text and read over the text and, I, and just make sure that I understand it for myself before I start allowing other influences, other godly men to be able to speak into my life. And so I just remember getting to verse, latter part of 19 and 20 and going, what in the world are we talking about? What does this even have to do with the law and how this came? And, and I think it really ties to us closer than you think. All right, so why the law? It's a definition of sin demonstration of sin, a communicate or a admonition against sin, and then a communication of sin. I want you to be able to see how this plays out. A communication of sin. And the communication, how we define it and demonstrate and the warning against it, was coming through an intermediary. Now what is first let's make sure we understand, right? If you're gonna have mediation, right? You're gonna have a party that's gonna help mediate between two parties that can't get along, right? They're going to help try to facilitate union and, and to reconcile two parties that are not reconciled. And so this intermediary is one who stands between two parties. And this is really, really important because you're going to see this begin to play out and make sense, I think, for us as we walk through this. So why the law? It's because it speaks of how much greater than God's promise is than the law that came as a result of that. Now, how does this, how does this make sense? Well, Paul picks up on this argument. He says, the law was put in place through angels... By an intermediary. You say, well, hold on a minute. I thought that Moses went on Mount Sinai and heard directly from God. Yes and no. 
does speak in the Old Testament that he was, he was communicating, he saw God face to face in a way, not in its truest sense, uh, because ultimately you know in Exodus chapter 33 that God said, if you looked upon me without any, any kind of a protection balance between me, I would kill you, right? My holiness would completely consume your, your flesh. And so, no. So what did he do? Put him in the, the cleft of the rock, right? And passed over him and then moved his hand at the very last bit for him to see the backside of the glory of God, right? This is what Exodus 33 is talking about. When, when one of the last things that Moses has said prior to that was, God, show me your glory. And he'd already seen God's glory in a variety of ways. He'd saw that God spoke to him in the burning bush and that God had showed him all kinds of stuff with uh, he took, put his hand in his cloak and took it out, and it was leprous, and he put it back in, and he brought it back out, and it was, it was perfectly whole, and then how he had picked up the, the staff, and it became a, st- a serpent, and so on and so forth, and he turned water into blood, and then he goes to see Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, of course, rejects it, and then as a result of rejecting God's will and plan for his life and the nation of Israel for a purpose of bring, showing God's glory, then there was the ten plagues, and as a result of the ten plagues, they were set free. After being set free, they got... Yeah, use that whole process for the children of Israel just to be plundered. I mean, the children of Egypt to be plundered by the children of Israel and not in an aggressive way, but just simply the children of, Israel, or the children of Egypt were just like, take anything, just get out, right? Take all you want, just as long as you leave. We want you gone. And so they plundered them through that promise that was even made in Genesis chapter 15. And as you continue on to be able to look, then they get to the Red Sea. And in the Red Sea, you see the part in the Red Sea. You just see miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And then they leave and you see the battle of Ephraim and where that ultimately from there that uh, the sun stood still. You see water coming from a rock. You see powerful miracle after powerful miracle. And yet Moses says, show me your glory. And God reveals his backside to them. I have to say this. It's a word parenthetically in the middle of the sermon. That's how it is and should be for every child of God. God reveals himself to us under salvation and in revealing himself under some salvation. After that, subsequent to that, again and again and again and again, God reveals himself through his word. Shows us who he is. And that's why I remember before I became a Christian, I used to think, I don't want to go to heaven. It just seems really boring. It just seems really dumb. Until you begin to realize how great God is and that we will never exhaust the glory and the greatness of God for billions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years for eternity. God will continue to blow our minds with who he is and what he knows. Because we'll, we'll be sinless, but we won't be omniscient. We won't know all things. And God will continue to reveal aspects of his character and his nature and his holiness and his wisdom and his might and his instruction and his character again and again and again forever. And I don't think we're just going to be on clouds playing harps, right? With wings. Right? We're not angels. We won't get wings. However, I believe it's going to be like it was in the Garden of Eden. We will work, but it will be a fruitful, productive work for God's glory. And we will walk with him in the cool of the day. With some really cool saints that went before us. And that's going to be really neat to hear their stories as well. For the glory of God, right? And so, communication of sin. So I thought Moses heard from God directly. Yes and no. Here it says in this particular passage, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So let's make sure that we're interpreting the Bible correctly. Acts chapter 7 gives us a little bit of clue what's taking place here. Acts 7, 53. Listen to what that says. Acts, 7, Acts chapter 7, verse 53. Oh, I'm in Luke. Would help if I actually got in the right book. Acts seven fifty three. I was like, That's, it's not there. Acts seven fifty three. And you who receive the law... As delivered by angels and did not keep it. So you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. 
And then you'll see the same thing in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, that says this. You don't have to turn there. We're just going to be there just for a moment. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So it's time directly. There was a message received by angels, and in that message it delivered uh, us an understanding of transgression and the su- subsequent uh, payment or punishment for transgressing, transgressing those those laws or those commandments, that message. And so in some way that we're not fully told in the scriptures, yes, God had communicated with Moses directly in some sense, but in other senses and other ways, God used angels to communicate to them as Hebrews 2 and Acts chapter 7 verse 53 points out, as well as Galatians chapter 3 verse 20, right? And so this is the key for us to pick it out. So why then, what does all that mean? And here's what it wants to pick up on. The law then was inferior to the promise. It was simply a means of an instrument that God used to demonstrate sin. You're going to see this next week as Pastor Tim preaches. Look at verse 23 and 24 of the same chapter, Galatians chapter 3, 23 and 24. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law in prison until coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It was a means, it was an instrument to use to continue as it's shown beforehand to define sin to us, to demonstrate to us what sin, to warn us against sin. And even in the communication, God didn't grant it directly. He used a messenger to do so. Whereas when God made the promise to Abraham, it was face-to-face, direct correlation interaction with Abraham. Right? And so it just shows in so many ways the inferiority of the law as it relates to the promises of God. Why is it inferior? Is it because it's not holy and righteous and good? Absolutely not. It was inferior because it could not bring life. And that's what Paul's picking up on. Now, an intermediary intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, what's the theme he's picking up on? Remember last week when I told you about the covenant that was made and the man-made covenant and how they would make covenants and they would split the animals in half and they would put each animal on on either side and they would walk through the blood to, to demonstrate or ratify the covenant? And you remember in Genesis chapter 15, what happened? Moses, I mean, not Moses, Abraham did everything that God had prescribed for him to do. And then as it's getting later in the day, it grew dark. And then what happened to Abraham? Talk to me. You remember Genesis 15? What happened to Abraham? He was what? Put to sleep. And so did Abraham walk through the covenant to help ratify that covenant with God? No. God alone made a covenant with his Trinitary self, right? And the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit was going to accomplish this apart from any works from man. You're going to go to sleep and I'm going to accomplish this on my own. Because you can't keep your half of the bargain, but I fully can. And so the promise I made in Genesis chapter 12, now that it's going to be sealed in Genesis chapter 15, with a covenant I'm going to make with you, and I know you're not going to be able to keep it, so I'm making the covenant with and by myself. The promise is on me and on my nature and for my name's sake. And as a result of that, this is what it's communicating here. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Who did God make the promise with? Himself. And he did not need anyone to aid him to fulfill his promises. That's good for us to know. And so simply the law is not a means for us to keep things, for us to be righteous. If you're here this morning, you've been taught that. Whatever your background was, you're Baptist or Catholic or Methodist or Presbyterian or Lutheran or Episcopalian or or Charismatic in some kind of Pentecostal sense. Whatever your, your background is, you are not declared righteous because of the things you do. 
It demonstrates that Christ has changed you by your actions, sure. But that's fruit. That's not the root. The root of my salvation is in Christ's finished work on the cross alone. Period. Now, it gets confusing. It does. I, I understand it. it can get confusing. Because you're like, well, you would say a person isn't saved if they don't have fruits in keeping with repentance. Yes, fruits, the byproduct of the root that's in keeping with me repenting from sin and placing my faith and trust in Jesus. But the root is what grants life. And what's the root in this illustration? Jesus' death and payment for sin on the cross, which is why the law came. So why then the law? Definition of sin, demonstration of sin, admonition against sin, and even the communication of sin was through intermediaries and not by God directly himself. He chose to use a means by which. And so the intermediary was angels, and then the angels were, gave the law to whom? Talk to me on Mount Sinai. Who got the law? Moses. And then was anybody else able to come up on the mountain? No, they'd stay a distance away from the mountain, right? You go up along. We're scared of God. We don't want anything to do with God. You go talk to him, and you bring it back to us. And so in a sense, you see... That you have angels being an intermediary between God and Moses. And then Moses being an intermediary between um, the angels and the people. And so how far the people are separated from God. Because of sin. The communication of sin. To go all the way back to Abraham. Was there an intermediary? Nope. God showed up and spoke to Abraham himself. And gave him a promise. And that's the promise that we're trusting in. So then here's the question. The last question we'll be looking at this morning. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? God made a promise. Did it annul the promise when God gave the law? No. And then why the law? We talked about that. So then, are the law of God and the promises of God in conflict with one another? Are they against one another? And the answer is no. They're not against one another. And we're going to see this in verses 21 and 22. First, we're going to see the law and its condemnation. The law and its condemnation. Verse uh, 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Right? So the the issue here is that how can we be granted life for us to be declared righteous? We're granted life or declared righteous because of what? Faith in Christ, not the law. But if life could be granted through the law, then yes, they would be in conflict with one another. They would be in disharmony. God would not have kept his word, that it would be by faith and the promises that God's granted. Whereas we saw in verse 7 of chapter 3 and in verse 9, know that those of faith are the ones of, of uh, sons of Abraham. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham was blessed and it was counted him as righteousness simply because he believed, not because he did stuff. But because he believed, guess what? He did stuff, right? He obeyed the things that God said. But don't get those in the reverse order. We obey because we first believe. We don't obey and then believe, right? If I step out in faith, I'm stepping out because I'm trusting the promises that were granted from God, right? I'm trusting who he says he is. But that's not what the the law was given for. The law was given to define sin, to demonstrate sin, to warn us against sin, and to communicate to us about what sin is. And so if law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Once again, go back to Romans 7 as we talked about the definition and demonstration of sin. The law or the scripture, as it's read here in this particular passage, was simply to show us we aren't good and we can't please God in and of our own means. Right? Hebrews eleven six says, how do we please God? It's impossible to please God apart from what? Faith. 
God is pleased with us. He pardons us. He grants us peace with him as a result of faith in him, not of works of the law. And this is the whole argument that's been swirling around. And I'm telling you, it's still an argument that swirls around today. And if I do all these things just right, the God will let me in. If I'm Mormon, then I mean I get to I get to be the third tier of heaven, right? It's a complete misrepresentation of even the, the the word of heaven, how it's used in the three senses. I get a third tier, and I eventually get my own planet, and I become a god, is what the Mormons would say. That's why it's a works-based mentality. I've got to do these certain things. If I get baptized by the priesthood of Melchizedek, and if I miss out, then somebody can baptize me by proxy after I'm dead. They're not looking at what the scripture says and how, man, it's faith and works is what that's trying to communicate. But if we go back to what chapter 2, verse 21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What a slander to God to say your death on the cross meant absolutely nothing. And what are we trusting in? Works? Well, then how much works? And what about me and my, my inexposure to certain things and my ability to not know certain things about the gospel? How much work should I be able to do? And what if, I, what if I die before I'm 30? What if I die before I'm 12? What if I die before I'm 6? That's not fair. That dude over there got to live to like 80 or 90 or longer. He had a lot more time to earn righteousness than I did. That's not fair. You know what the beauty and the reality is? But if Christ has already made payment for all sin, then simply come. And that leads us to our last point. The law and its condemnation... It simply imprisoned everything under sin. But now look at the promise and its invitation. Its invitation. But the law imprisoned everything under sin so that, purposeful clause, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The promise, what's the promise? That you might be justified by faith. As Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous because of faith. That same promise could be granted to us by faith in Jesus Christ, given to those who believe. If we simply believe. Now, let me. One quick caution and clarifier here, just to make sure we're on the same page. It's not just an intellectual ascent. Or an intellectual arrival at some point to be able to say, I believe Jesus probably did live on this planet. He was probably a pretty good teacher. That's not enough. Not enough. The book of James says that even the demons believe and tremble. They know who Jesus is. They could define who Jesus is. They, they from a variety of parts in the, in, the, in the Gospels could begin to say, we know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. They've been around a lot longer than we have. And you know the Bible says that the angels and demons learn from us? I wonder what they learn. Here's what I think they learn. They learn the grace of God from us. Why would God grant repentance and salvation to such a sinful person? Why would he do that? Why would he lavish his mercy and grace and give him an heir of all the blessings of Christ Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father right now? Why would he grant Kevin Edmonds that? Which is why it goes back to justification. Remember our hypothetical question? If you were here a few weeks ago, I want you to answer this question for me. If God were to look at you right now and say, why should I let you into heaven? What should your answer be? Talk to me. You got it. What is it? If God looks at you and says, why shall I allow you into heaven? What should be your answer? You shouldn't. Right? You shouldn't. 
But then now, why will he? Because of Jesus. And his finished work for us on the cross. And it's simply an invitation to trust in that Jesus. How do we trust in him? Here's what the Bible says. Open of the gospel, Mark, says this, Mark 1.15. Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, encouraging all that would hear this message to repent and believe. Repent simply means a change of attitude, change of mind, change of understanding. It's a paradigm shift, massive moving. Where I was heading in this direction, all of a sudden something happens, and all of a sudden I'm like, man, this is the wrong way. And everything that I thought was right, and every way I viewed my, my, my worldview was completely secular, and this was looking this one way. And all of a sudden, some some reason it's not because of me, my eyes were open. All of a sudden, man, this is wrong. And you turn and you go the opposite direction. I'm not going to keep going in the wrong direction. I'm going to go the right direction. That's what the word repent means. And believe. Believe in what? The gospel. This good news. Gospel means good news. And so what is that? Real quick. Here it is. It's the same thing that Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. That's the same. It's a synonym. Confess Jesus as Lord. It's a synonym for the same word it means to repent. How do you mean? Well, if I'm heading in this direction... I'm heading in that direction because I want to go in that direction. I think it's the wisest thing for me to be able to do. Business ventures, relationships, money, pleasure, whatever. I'm heading in this direction because why? I want to. And nobody should tell me otherwise. I'm independent. I don't want anybody telling me anything. And then all of a sudden, I realized I'm making a mess. God's law was shown to me. It defines what sin is. It demonstrates what sin is. It warns me about what sin is. It communicates to me about what sin is. And all of a sudden, I realized I'm wretched. I'm wretched. I'm undone. And I need help. And then I turn. And I say, well, I won't. what's the way out? How do I save from this sin? And I see Jesus. And there's an about face. And I start turning toward Jesus is. And I start following him. And now I say, you're in control. You lead me. You guide me. You instruct me. Because why? I've done it on my own. And it didn't go well. Went really, really horrible. And now I've trusted in you. That's what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. To confess this means to agree. God, the Lord Jesus was Lord, whether or not you'll ever confess him or not. You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. You just acknowledge his lordship over you. The song we sang, he's sovereign over us. Sovereign means a ruler or a king, one who has complete authority. I think sometimes here in the States we wrestle with that because we have a representative democracy. I think sometimes in other parts of the world, even though we would say, man, they don't have freedom and so on and so forth. I think they get, though, what it means to be a servant to a a sovereign much clearer, much faster than we do. And they actually relate to the Bible much, much quicker. Because we don't want anybody telling us what to do. We're Americans. The land of the free, the home of the brave, right? And I'm grateful to be an American. I'm grateful to have the privileges and freedoms we have here. I'm grateful. Don't hear me wrong. But I'm not in control. When I make a promise to my kids, I can't keep them always. But when God makes a promise, he always keeps them. Because who can thwart the will and the plans and the hand of God? No one. So it's a beautiful picture here of repenting from sin, confessing Christ as Lord, and then believing. Because we will continue to turn back towards sin at times. We'll have these momentary lapses of, of, of insanity, right? Where we just like go do dumb things. It's not our normative practice, but we will do those. And so then do we need to like get saved again and again and again? No, that's why you repent, 
and believe. And so what is that belief? That's what Romans 10 9 answers that as well. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him, Jesus, from the grave, you shall be saved. What is that? Well, that believing that God raised Jesus from the grave was paying for sin, past, present, and future. Sins that I committed before I was saved and sins that I will commit after I'm saved. And so I'm trusting when I repented of my sins once and for all, I'm confessing not only the sins I have committed, but the sins I will commit in the future. And Jesus paid them all. All to him I owe. Right? So that's imagery. So two questions for us. One, has that ever happened to you? Has your eyes ever been open? And you can't explain it. You might have been in church your whole life. You might have been, even maybe this morning, you're like, all of a sudden I feel like this dude, that I'm, you know, some of you are visitors, you may not know me very well, and you're like, I, he's talking directly to me. How does he know some of the things I've been dealing with? Why did he say certain things in the sermon? That's the Holy Spirit taking the word of God and making you a child of God as you turn from sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus. So I just implore you, repent and believe. Trust in Christ. And the Pastor Tim, who was here earlier, Paul and Lindsay, who were on the stage, Myself, I'll be in the pastor reception this moment. You want to ask questions about that. That's why we're here. I'm most of the time the last one to leave the property here. Why? Because I want to grant anyone an opportunity. They want to have a conversation with me. They can have a conversation with me about the gospel. Okay? That's you. I implore you just to cry out to God. He hears your prayer. He, when you genuinely repent of sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus, that's God already at work in you. Already at work in you. And then lastly, probably the vast majority of us have already done that. And that's a great thing. Here's what my encouragement to you is. Are you sharing that with others? If you're a parent, are you sharing that with your kids? Even at their young age, are you encouraging them to know their sin and to trust in the Savior that's been provided for them? You say, well, I want them to make their own decision. You don't, you don't operate that way in any of your other relationships, though. Imagine my father, my children's grandfather, and I love him, and I think, man, what? amazing gift of God that he is to me and my family. But I don't want you kids to know him. I want you to make your own mind, your own decision later on whether or not you want to know your grandfather. When you're older, I'll let you get a chance to get to know your grandfather. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Right? And you're laughing because why? You think that's a really dumb thing too. Right? If someone is kind and, and benevolent to us, is amiable, well, we want them to know the people that, we're, that, that, that do those things. We want to introduce them to those type of people. Well, if God is the epitome of what love and kindness and mercy and long-suffering is, why wouldn't we want our children to know God? Unless we don't believe that's who God is. And we look at the law like God is evil and harmful and harsh toward us. And that's not because God is. It's because our sin nature doesn't want to repent of sin. And so if you're here and you've already repented of sin, whether it's your children, co-worker, neighbor, friend, classmate, even to the ends of the earth. Why? Paul and Lindsay were going to plane to fly halfway across the world to India. Or Tina and Thailand and Cambodia with people who look different and have cultures and foods and systems of doing things that's completely foreign to us. Why would we do that? It's because in you shall all the nations be blessed. We now carry on the promise of Abraham people will be blessed through hearing the gospel that comes from our lips. What a privilege we have to give as we've already done in our service and to go 
to the nations. Twofold invitation. You ever been saved? If not, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus today. And if you have been saved, it's not, it's no longer come and see. You open up the Gospel of John, and they're like, come and see, come and see, come and see. That's great. But Jesus isn't on the earth anymore. You can't come see Jesus on the earth. So how does it end? In Matthew 28, it says, go, therefore, and make disciples. It's not a come and see religion anymore. We don't have a temple. We don't have Jesus here. It's a go and tell. And so if you have received Christ, go and tell. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your.